Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey. Today's guest, we have Danny Van with us. Danny, how are you doing today? Awesome. Awesome. Glad to be here. I'm glad you can make it. Today is is a story about a guy who knows a thing or two about some foster care stories, um, beginning a couple years back with your own, right? Yes, that's right. Yes. Um, been through a lot. How did you end up in the foster care system? Um, well, the, I suppose typical, uh, broken home syndrome, uh, parents had, a um, violent, uh, divorce, uh, back in the late sixties, mom got all six kids, um, tried to struggle along, uh, you know, jobs for, uh, women back then weren't really that glamorous. And so she kind of struggled, uh, uh, to, to keep us fed and stuff. And, uh, we went through, uh, they didn't have wick back then. So we had Korean war surplus, powdered eggs, powdered milk, brick cheese, all that good stuff, uh, struggled to get along. She, she couldn't really make ends meet. So, uh, she started farming us out to family. So we went through what they today call the kinship process. Uh, and those didn't last very long before. Uh, we wound up back at mom's, um, she remarried, um, and this is all before foster care, mind you, right? She remarried that failed, uh, after about a year, year and a half, uh, everything, then she got depressed. Everything kind of fell apart at that point. The house got condemned and she took us to, uh, Catholic orphanage, St. Vincent's home in Saginaw. And we spent a cycle there. I say a cycle, about a year. And from there, they put us out to foster care. Um, and so by this time, I've been in five or six different school systems. Uh, my five siblings and I were split up, boys and girls at the home. Uh, but it was a blessing. I, I can still remember walking up the steps. It was a great big, huge. Like you see in the movies, those great big, huge brick, you know, majestic buildings and 14 steps to lead up to the front door. And, uh, man, we went up there and guess what? We got new clothes. We had food every day. We had people caring about us and watching over us. And, uh, and I was pretty tall at that point for my age. I was about 10, 11 years old, uh, maybe 12. And uh, so I was one of the taller people on the playground. So the bullies, all I had to do was have a little chat with them and they kind of left my family alone. So we survived pretty well there. So that was the stepping out of all of that chaos into a foster home that, that leads you up to me entering the foster home itself. So, well, that had to be scary for a young kid. How old were you when, when you ended up, um, when your mom ended up starting 
farming you guys out, and then you stepped into a foster into the foster system itself. It it, it was I was I'm the oldest of six, and I was about uh, nine ten years old when all this started, uh, and so you know. Again, being the oldest of six kids, uh, I was uh, groomed to be the caretaker. Mom bragged that by the time I was four, I could change a diaper. So even at four years old, I was mom's right-hand man, you know. And so I was the caretaker, you know, looking after everybody, making sure everybody was safe and taken care of. And um, it it was crazy, just totally crazy. (laughs) Well, and I imagine that uh, you mentioned walking in that you were surprised, even happy that you're seeing food on a regular basis and new clothes and things like that. But I imagine yeah. that had to be frightening as well for a kid of any age. But eight or nine, ten years old, you're you're yeah. probably still in a place with some fear. Yeah, it was. It, it it really was. But here here's the good thing: we had been raised. Uh, if if mom didn't do anything right, the one thing that she did do was take us to church every Sunday. We went to catechism. We, you know, so we got the basics and that, that was awesome. Right. So we were around the Catholic church and we saw the, the priests and the nuns. And when we walked up those steps to that great big, huge building that I, I agree with you under normal circumstances would be con- very intimidating to a youngster, you know, uh, but we got dropped off and all of the people that met us at the door were nuns in the old traditional habits, right? And and they had a couple of priests um, and, uh, you know, with great big smiling faces. They had Knights of Columbus volunteers. So, I mean, it was, it was a happy place, believe it or not. I mean, I hate to, I hate to pull the Annie card out, but I mean, it was, it was a decent place, you know, I mean, uh, and, and, and it was stable environment for us, you know, so scary or not, it was still, if you, oh, it was decent. <laughs> if you're talking about little orphan Annie, um, if you're yeah. just listening to this, I promise you guys, he doesn't look like little orphan Annie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she she was a lot cuter. No offense, but she was. That's all right. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I talk to a lot of people about their their journeys, and a lot of kids are very angry about the yeah. journey that they went through, and they place oh. that anger in different places. Whether they're angry at their parents. Or they're angry at the foster parents or the system itself. Yep. Where did you have that? Where did you place that anger as a kid? You know, when it first all started, um, our anger really first was pointed at dad because he's the one that left. Right. And, you know, we, we didn't understand what was going on because of our age and because they, you know, all I knew is that leading up to the divorce, there were a lot of fights and arguments. So uh, our, my anger and the anger of most of my siblings at the beginning was, was at dad. Uh, then when mom dropped us off, you know, uh, there was a lot of confusion when we were going to the relatives, but at least we were around people we knew. And they, for the most part, were okay with having us around, at least at the beginning. Uh, of course, then when they had to send us back, then you got more anger because now you're angry at the people who could have, should have, would have helped, right? But they only did a little bit and it wasn't enough. So now you're angry at them, 
because they didn't step up. Uh, and trust me, our family, we're Italian, you know. So mom had eight brothers and sisters. I had eight aunts and uncles. And there's only six of us, you know. They all had pretty good-sized families, though, to be honest. But so dad, we targeted dad. Then we got mad at the relatives. And then when mom dropped us off, it, it was like, see, she got pregnant when she was 15. I was born when she was 16. By the time she was 22, she had six kids. Wow. So none of this should be a surprise to anybody, right? When she finally dropped us off at the orphanage, it was, I suppose, for her, somebody took a couple thousand pounds weight off her back and she went and flew like an eagle. We didn't see her for quite a while. And when we did see her, it was hit and miss. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and, you know, it, it, so then the anger went back to her too. It's, it's like, who does care about us? You know, uh, I was fortunate the foster homes that I was in, I was in only two of them. Uh, we're, we're very good and the people were good. Uh, some of my siblings that wasn't quite so lucky, but, um, you know, so the anger pretty much goes back to the parents, you know, and, and we carried that back and forth for quite a while. Um, as, as life went on, cause there's a lot more to the story. It, you know, it does turn out pretty darn good. Uh, you know, God, God has a plan. We don't understand it at the time, but, uh, it, it did turn out good. So the anger part. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was the parents and the relatives. They, they, they could have, should have, would have done more. I know it's a common thing to see. Did you ever find yourself angry at God for putting you in that position as a kid? Did, were you in that mindset? I I can't say that I was cuz I like I said we were we were brought up with God and so I kept begging God to help I kept begging God to help me understand you know I kept begging God for the miracles you know give us a miracle uh but no I don't think myself I never really got mad at God because you know, I know he's in control of it all. I never understood it. So what I did was I, I prayed for understanding and, uh, and I got it eventually. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, that understanding part usually takes a hot minute to get to. Yeah. It takes, yeah, it takes a few hot minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's, I asked that question, you know, not to, to point anything at God there, but I know a lot of people, especially when they're kids, have a hard time understanding that long game. Yeah. It seems that God's plans are usually long game plans. They are long game plans. And here's the thing is, you know, I, I wound up studying a lot more to me. God was the thing that held me together. God and my music. I love music. Okay. So, you know, even as a little kid before everything fell apart, uh, you know, I was, mom was in love with, with Elvis's singing. I became infatuated with his music. Who, I mean, I, it's kind of, who, who wouldn't love the, all that fun, kind of fun music as a kid, you know, you get to jump around and all that. So God to me was part of my anchor and knowing that he had a plan and that something was going to happen that would work out. Even though we had all these circumstances, things worked out. Things, good things happened along the way, 
They weren't all everything I wanted or everything that we want. Every, every kid wants everything to go back the way it was and for it to be good. But that's not life. You know, that's not normal. Uh, rarely does that happen to my observation. But I learned a lot about God in that <laughs> those people that, that he loves, he chastens. And, and, and even you go back and look at some of the big stories about Joseph. He was in prison all those years for something he didn't do. You look at David, and, and here he was anointed king, and he had to run for his life and hide in caves for years. You know, so when I started looking around and saying, well, you know, these are these are the big guys in the Bible and look what God did to them to get them ready. You know, Um, so I kind of look at it again. I'm an optimist. So to me, it's not only about the glass looks half full to me. It's like it's half full on its way to being filled up because there's more. I know there's more, you know, and if I if I work at it, if I'm positive, if I try to find people that can help make it better, it can get better. And it does, you know, sometimes, most of the time it'll get better. Well, I don't know if you're familiar with Carol Dweck's work at all or not, but she's the author of the book uh, Mindset. And she talks a lot about the difference between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. You know, the difference between life sucks or life is difficult right now. You know, it's not better or it's not better yet. And That's a mindset that most kids don't stumble into. How did you find that? Dad. Dad and in, in, in the priests and the nuns at catechism. God has a plan. He's working things out. My dad always told me, you can do anything you want if you put your mind to it. And so when I put the two of those together, and it's like, I'm going to get through this. I know we can make it better. And the other thing is, I had five little brothers and sisters in tow. So I'm the kid out front chopping the weeds and pushing people out of the way to protect my family from a very young age, you know. So I had a lot of motivation. I can believe that for sure. Now, did you ever get a chance to reconnect with your with your bio family? Yes. Did you reconcile those those issues with them? Uh, after a lot of struggling, we finally did. Yeah, (laughs) it took a while. And like I said, more than a hot minute because, uh, excuse me. Um, it, it, it took a while because there was denial. There was, you know, uh, you know, as a kid, you, you kind of sort of want to blame yourself, but then you get to grow up and you start looking at things through an adult's eyes and you look back and you go, wait a minute, why did they do that? And I write about that in my book, uh, My Journey in the Shadow of the King. There's a whole chapter on recognizing that my parents are people too. And they were doing what they thought at the time. And I'm not going to use the word best because some of it was pretty crappy, you know. But they did what they had to at that moment in time for them, you know, to survive and do what they could for us, whatever it was. And again, I'm trying to avoid the word best because that's a judgmental call. But I, I, it was a revelation to me to discover in my parents' case 
that when my mom, uh, who was a product of the Depression, the Great Depression, she was a child in that, and so was my dad. They were both born in the middle of the Depression, okay? So they had little. When my mom's parents couldn't feed all nine of the kids, they farmed mom out to Aunt Marion's house for a year or two. So guess what mom did when she got stranded with six kids and couldn't feed them anymore? Out you go. That's the way we do things. And I, I didn't put that together, honestly, until I started writing the book. I had gone back and talked to mom. I had asked her, why did you do this? And, of course, the answer you usually get is, well, that's the best I could do, and I'm not going back there. It's too painful, yada, 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 right? It's like, well, yeah, it's painful for you, but I'm trying to figure this out here for the rest of my life. Well, just let it go. And it's like, no, it doesn't work that way. I got to understand, you know, and this understanding came to me. And, um, and it turns out that, that parents are people too, and they make mistakes. And unfortunately, when they have kids, we get caught in a crossfire. (laughs) Unfortunately, you're very right there. (laughs) So how long did you, were you in foster homes? I was in between the, 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 the kinship care and the, the, the couple of foster homes. It was a, probably about four to five years total. Uh, and by the time, uh, uh, the quote unquote rescue came, uh, this was really heavy because, um, you know, in that fourth or fifth year, uh, my two of my sisters were being put up for adoption. And that was just crushing. I was devastated. It's like, what's going to happen? I'm never going to see him again, you know? And so I'm crying out to God, what what are we going to do now, you know? And next thing I know, uh, there's a paper that shows up at the foster home that says dad has repurchased the family property and is in the process of getting it recertified as a living place again. And he's going to, get all six of us kids back and he did wow uh yeah yeah so the problem is is he hadn't really healed from all of his problems so we went back into more violence more alcohol uh a stepmom that he met at one of the corner bars who was supposed to originally be our nanny who wound up being our stepmom and she was an alcoholic Over their 30 years of marriage, he broke her jaw three times. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash foster care nation. Now back to the show. Whoa. So when we went back into the house, it was kind of a little bit of a honeymoon, very short honeymoon. And then kaboom, the fight started, the arguing started, the, the, the fist through the door started again. And it was deja vu all over again, you know. But this time, the difference was I was about 15, right? And I went to 
the caseworker in the front of the court. And I said, this crap ain't working. I, this is not a healthy place. I don't want to be there anymore because <laughs> I saw healthy when I was in the foster home, right? I saw healthy at the orphanage, relatively healthy, right? And so I'm going, I don't have to, I, I can't do this again, you know? And so we did bounce back and forth. When when mom heard that dad uh, bought the house and was fixing it up and getting those kids back, all of a sudden, out of wherever it was she flew to, she flew back and she wanted the kids, right? Of course, those are my kids. What are you doing with them? It's like, well, you left them, you know? <laughs> Uh, so that started up and, uh, mom hated the stepmother and police were called and, uh, you know, fights broke out. Um, mom opened a pizzeria. I wondered where she got the money from. I finally found out dad had to pay her off on the house because it was her house, you know? So, uh, this story, I mean, so mom's closing the pizzeria going to meet uh, dad and the stepmother because they punished one of my siblings and mom had so many rolls of quarters in her purse and in uh, the scuffle ensued and mom just swung her purse and money went, you know, the coins went flying everywhere after it made contact with stepmom who went flying head over heels. I wasn't there for it, but we heard all the details. And so it was just, Chaos, more chaos, you know, because, you know, and I know, I know like Dr. John DeGarmo and some of the other folks out there are talking about reforming the system. This is one of the, the bugaboos is, yes, you want to, you want to reunite the family, but you don't want to reunite the fire, you know, and this was chaotic, chaotic fire that was just flaming all around. Um, so it bounced back and forth between the parents several times. Um sounds to me like you experienced a lot of dysfunction and violence and problems in in your in your original family and yes. so these problems yes. as we all know tend to be generational issues they they don't yes. go away for yes. kids usually and so how many times have you broken your wife's jaw none none no. you, you might have some catching up to do on that one no i don't <laughs> I, I broke that chain i there were moments you know where i i lived what I learned and, and, you know, my, my conscience got the best of me, my, my, my studies, my Bible studies and, and, uh, and the fact that I had sworn that I would not walk that same path, you know, so I worked very hard at it. Um, That's the real question I, I think is, yeah, is yeah. you saw that. You knew yeah. it's you know it's a generational thing. Typically, it it goes on and on and on until somebody breaks it. I know you said you chose not to do that. What was your catalyst for change in that moment that you said, "Okay, I am putting my flag in the ground here, and I will never do this again." Right. I w what that catalyst for change was is my my absolute phobia of the D word. I did not want to get a divorce. I did not want to to ex have my kids experience a family being ripped apart like that. Uh, was I successful? Uh, not entirely, but that's another story. <laughs> but I did go to counseling as a result of that. I knew that that something wasn't right. I did discover I couldn't control myself for some reason. 
course, I, you know, I did come to realize I had pent up anger. I came to realize I had bad examples, you know, but I'm an adult now. I can make better choices. Uh, wanting to make better choices is not the same as walking that and figuring out what do you do? Cause I didn't know what to do, you know, other than explode, throw something, break something, you know, that's was the pattern I was shown, but I, I went and got counseling. Um, there wasn't as much self-help back then, you know, as there is today. Uh, we, you know, we didn't have the internet. I didn't have YouTube. I didn't have all these, you know, dial a counselor stuff like they have these days. But, um, so I did, I, I found a counselor and, and, uh, to this day, I've been through over 15 years of counseling, uh, on and off during different periods of my life to, to resolve different waves of issues. <laughs> Well, that's amazing that you've been able to do that and had the, the foresight to realize that this is where I'm heading and I don't want to do that. I don't want right. to repeat this. So right. you said you had you had a, a family that you've created. How many kids do you have? Two. Oh. I, I have two natural kids. I'm married now and, and uh, I have four four adult step kids, you know, but uh, yeah, I have two natural children. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so your kids got to see you struggle through that and, mm -hmm. and turn your life around. They didn't see as much of it as I did because I wasn't as bad. Um, and <clears throat> I also worked very hard at, if I had an issue, I tried to put it behind closed doors. Um, one of the things that I recall in my book, my journey in, in the shadow of the king is that we witnessed when I was growing up, uh, physical violence right in front of us. I mean, it wasn't, you know, uh, we, it got to the point where, you know, being Italian, we had tossed salad you know, most meals and in our house, it was literally tossed. Everything was thrown. Mom was Italian. Dad was bigger than her. So she just threw stuff at him. So at our house, a tossed salad was a normal thing, you know? And so she would shoo us upstairs uh, toward the end, just before they got divorced. We had an upstairs uh, stairway that had a door on it with a slide bolt, you know, where the slide and flips down. And she would put us upstairs when the arguments broke out uh, so that none of us got hurt. Because I tried to stand up to dad once, nine, nine, ten years old. I got in, in between him and mom and found myself in the other side of the room on my head because <laughs> he just backhanded me. And, of course, him being an adult sailor, you know, with his physique and everything, I I just flew like a like back to the rag doll, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I took this to a different place with my kids and to the point where, you know, unfortunately I did file for divorce, uh, and the kids were totally shocked. It's like, what, what happened? You know, so they, you know, I, I pretty well hit it, you know? Um, but the good news is I'll, I'll flip ahead and again, I was so thrilled when I put this book together last year uh, that my son agreed to write the final chapter here. And 
I'll just I'll just flip to it if I if I may do that because he tells the story and encourages other people that are angry with their parents to not carry that because I had a heart attack. They had heart surgery first, open heart surgery at four to five. Did you know stress kills people with heart attacks and stuff? I've heard that. I've heard that. <laughs> yeah. Well, guess what? I lived through that too. Thank God that I lived through that. But anyway, he uh, he wrote this uh, addendum to my book. And in there, he says, when I had that heart attack, when he saw that his dad had a heart attack and could possibly uh, – open heart surgery could possibly not be around anymore. It was a major wake up call to him. And so he, at that point had decided that he wanted to reopen our relationship. And so uh, it's just a thrill to have, it's about a page and a half in here, but my son closes the whole book by saying that he learned that uh, there's bigger things and that, that, you know, for me, that that uh, that parents are people too and make mistakes, you know. So it was awesome. Sounds to me like one of the things you taught was generational growth. Yes, and yeah. that's amazing because this is one of the things that that's always been a one of the, one of the uh, one of the drives inside of our journey through foster care is that I know that I I might change the kids today, right? And maybe they're tomorrow, and maybe. 10 years from now or 20 years from now and their kids tomorrow and their grandkids tomorrow. Yes. So just that ability to create some level of, of experience that's positive in the world goes on long before our death. No. Yeah. Beyond our death, not before. it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Long after. Yeah. 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 So, so it's that ability to, to really transcend time with, with our behavior and, and our dedication to, to doing the right thing and helping out others. And that's what you're doing right here, right now today, telling your story and, and having this book that you've, uh, you've got there. What can you tell us about what drove you to write this book? Ooh, thank you for asking. That's, that's a fun story. Um, I, I got into entertaining, as I said, I wanted to be a musician um, so I got into entertaining and, and I was driven is if you couldn't tell, uh, it was like, I'm going to be successful. I'm not going to follow in uh, my parents' footsteps. I'm going to make things better and have a better life for me and my kids. And so I got into entertaining and, um, was able to actually ultimately perform in Las Vegas I, I performed uh, here in Michigan as a headliner at the Royal Oak Music Theater on what would have been Elvis's 50th birthday. And I got to sing Heartbreak Hotel with the, with the co-author, Tommy Durden. We actually sang Heartbreak Hotel together on that stage. What a thrill. How you know? amazing. Yeah, it was. It was just incredible. And, and in between all of that, I had struggles, I had failures, I had successes. I, you know, I, I sang in, in uh, driveways of Midas Muffler opening uh, celebrations. And, 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 and I, I was the headliner at the Clare County Fair one year, you know. So I, I went the gamut, but it was all fun for me. And the thing I discovered is that 
if I take my pain and my issues and my problems and look at other people that either have that or worse and try and help them, it, it actually makes me grow. and makes me feel better about myself. And it takes the, the focus off of my pain when I go help someone else's pain. And so as an entertainer, I didn't realize it at the time. But every time I got applause, it wasn't just for me. It was I was out making other people happy, which is how mom grew me. I didn't change her diapers like I did at home. But my job was to go take care of people and make them happy and make them please them. So over the years, I entertained. And finally, probably in my 40s, because uh, I'm I'm 67 now, in my 40s, it hit me that, you know, the story started for me musically in the orphanage. When we were there, a volunteer local band came in and performed for us kids. And, and of course, I'm wanting to be a, a big star someday, right? So a live band to me at, at 9, 10 years old was like, wow, these guys are musicians. And so when they got done with their little mini concert, they came off the stage, Jason, and they shook my hand. And it blew my mind that, that these musicians would take this time to do this. So when I started entertaining, do you know that I jumped off the stage during the concert? And that one handshake, I was counting it last night in my sleep, get ready for today's interview. I have shaken over. 10,000 hands, and probably a third of those were kids in parks and rec shows, in family concerts and all. So one handshake turned into 10,000, and I can't tell you how many people have come up to me over the years and thanked me for doing that. And, and people, little kids that were five years old back then, I got them up on stage to do blue suede shoes with me, right? Because I, I was always about including the kids, right? And I and now here's a 25-year-old, 30-year-old person walking up to me. I remember when you did that. Do you know what that did for me? <laughs> and so over the years, those things happened. Well, in my 40s, I decided it was time to go back to St. Vincent's home and be the person that showed up on stage for those kids. And guess what? This was in... Probably the 1990s, I want to say. Yeah, because I was. You know. So in the 1990s, I went back to, to do a concert for the kids at St. Vincent's Home. And guess what? They told me no. <laughs> <laughs> they said, we got mostly boys here now. And they're they're These guys are having problems. And this is 1990, whatever year it was. And they're going, they don't care about Elvis. <laughs> they you're not going to do them any good. <laughs> and so they told me no. And I went, I, I, you know, once again, I look up at God and I go, God, I want to give back. Now what do I do? On my way home, I drove through Saginaw and there was a Michigan boys, a Lutheran boys home. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to drop in and see what, if they would want me to come and encourage their boys. And they said, yes. <laughs> and so I performed there. And what I did was, of course, you know, you're talking to Danny Van here, not 
Joe Smith. So I didn't just show up with my guitar to sing. I showed up with my guitar. I sang for the boys. I got to know them. I got to know the counselor. This was just me and them and my guitar, right? And I talked to the counselors and they said, yeah, a lot of these kids, Christmas is coming. They don't have families. They don't have anything to do. I said, really? I said, okay, do me a favor. Get a wish list from each boy. Three things that if they could have anything they wanted for Christmas, what would it be? And tell them we're going to try to get at least one of those for them, right? So I set up a Christmas concert at a local uh, restaurant, okay? They donated all the food for the kids and the counselors and the whole staff. They set up a head table for these kids like you were at a wedding. And I went out into the community and raised money and got donations. And we literally got every kid, everything on their list and, and all kinds of stuff for the home itself. They needed a pickup truck to take everything home when we, when we dumped the concert. Did that three years in a row. And the second year, uh, when it was over uh, in the spring, and we were talking about the third year, the director of the home, his name was Gordy, uh, Gordy Kakoulis, called me up and he said, Danny, he said, one of the kids just was in my office and wanted to know who this Danny Van is and why he cares about us. And I said, Gordy, you go back and tell that young man, when I was his age, I was in a home where he is. And somebody came and did this for me. And now it's my turn to do it for you. And when you grow up, it'll be your turn. And he went back and told them that. They they called me uh, later that year and wanted me to come to their uh, annual uh, recognition dinner. And they gave me a certificate, which I told them I didn't want. But they said, too bad. You did this. We want to recognize you. And <clears throat> they wanted me to tell my story. And afterwards, I, I told probably a lot of what you just heard. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook and you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash foster care UJ. We've got a group over there where we talk about foster care, we talk about adoption, and we talk about all the things related. If your podcast player allows it, you can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. We'd love to see you next week. Now back to the show. And Gordy came up to me and he goes, Danny, he said, we want you to tell a story about what you've been through. And, and I didn't understand at the time. And I said, why? And he says, do you realize how encouraging it is to these kids in this home to know that one of them made it to where you are? That the counselors who are trying to help these kids, it encourages them to know that one of these kids could grow up and do this in the future. He said, your story needs to be heard. And this was in 2000, I want to say 2003, right? Well, in 2013, 10 years later, I had a heart attack and it disabled me. And I spent a year and a half on my sofa, uh, zombified, trying to figure out. I lived through the heart attack, thanks to my fabulous wife, who 
saw saw my face when I came home from work that day, and I was going to go lay down. Uh, ER said if I would have laid down, I never would have got up. So I owe my life to my wife, <laughs> you know. So anyway, I'm sitting on the couch asking God again, what now what? What do I do now? I can't entertain anymore. I can't work anymore. What do you want me to do with the rest of my life? And all of a sudden, Gordy's words kept coming back. Your story needs to be heard. And so I started writing the book. And that's, and it's, in fact, Gordy agreed. I got back in touch with him all those years later. And he agreed to write the foreword of the book. So Gordy uh, put his words in front of the book as far as his version of the story. And uh, the first box of books that I published uh, went to the uh, the Wellspring Lutheran Family Services Group. They they took 60 books and uh, have been encouraging foster families and uh, um the homeless shelters and some of the other people that they support, they pass these books out to. Long wow. answer. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> what what a testament to the value of one guy shaking a kid's hand. Isn't that something? Just that much kindness to reach out yeah. and acknowledge a kid who's in a in a difficult place. Yeah. Yeah. These are the things that I struggle with when people say I could never do foster care. I could not do that. I can man, sometimes Sometimes take a handshake does what? Yeah. Take yeah, take an hour and just go visit somebody. You know, I mean, that's all these band people did, and I couldn't even tell you the name of the band or the person that shook my hand. Yeah, you know, but look what he did, and and consequently, you know, I, I don't. Again, it's not about credit; it's about having love for people. You know, that's it. When you when you reach outside of yourself, no matter how much you're hurting, you're, it's going to help you heal. <clears throat> That's my message. Uh, I don't, don't disagree with you a bit there. That's that's the power of, of our world, I think, is that we live in a society and a culture that's, that's really, really interested in making certain that we, we get what's owed to us and we tell everybody how good we are and how amazing we are and sometimes just reaching a hand out, helping someone else. That's the greatest thing we can do for ourselves, for the people behind us, and the future generations yet to come. Yep. Yep. Listen for that whisper. Because there'll be a whisper that says, go, go talk to that person. Go give them your, your gift card that you just got. Go give it to this person. And there's a whisper in there. And one of the other stories for me is at a really down time in my adult life, uh, I was struggling and uh, decided to go visit an old friend of mine who was out in Arizona. And, uh, you know, again, another turning point, another, I call all this my journey. And the cover of my book has got a long road on it leading up to a Bible with a crown on it. So, you know, we're leading ourselves to, this everlasting, you know, joy that's going to come. If if you're a Bible reader, flip back to the back of the book. I, I have read the back of the book. You know, I like doing that. And you go all the way to the last two chapters, and I got great news, everybody. We really do all live happily ever after. 
because he comes back, he restores the world. The Garden of Eden is restored and he sets up his kingdom. And we really do all live happily ever after. Anyway, I went to Arizona and met with an old friend of mine who was one of the early guitar players back before my parents got divorced. Used to, when I got my first guitar, oh no, I take that back. It was after my parents got divorced because I got my first guitar when I was 15. It was the one thing that my stepmom did that really changed my life. She bought me my first guitar. So I got to give her that when she really, in her older age, she really did care a lot about us and she reached out to us a lot. Um, but I went to Arizona and while I was there, again, crying out to God, dead end road, potholes in my road, you know, life is, life sucks, right? And uh, having a little bit of a pity party and I cry out to God, you know, I, I, I just, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I can do this anymore. And all of a sudden at about two o'clock in the morning, I'm playing my guitar, just trying to get through the night, right? And because um, my buddy was a guitar player, we had played guitar for about five hours and he went to bed and I said, I'm not ready yet. And I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm asking God, help me. I, I don't know what to do. And all of a sudden I hear, I'm listening. And it was incredible. It was like I could hear almost like swirling harp music and a brand new song was born. I hear an angel whispering, telling me he's listening. So everything I say and do should be fit for an angel too. And that song is on the front page of my website. I started doing it at my Elvis concerts, and it was one of the most popular songs that I did. And I sold, no matter how big the audience was, 10% of the audience would buy a copy of I Hear an Angel Whispering. It's unbelievable, unbelievable. So it's there to console people. And when God gave it to me, he said, I'm giving you this new music, not to make you famous, not to make money, not to make you rich. It's for you to go help people. That's what we're missing in this world. Yes. People willing just to help people. I think those connections are, are made through story. And it's been that way for for thousands of years. If you go back and look at cave paintings, right? What were they doing? Yep. They were telling stories. Telling stories. What are we and doing? Singing today? songs. Don't forget the music. Oh, well, there's that's true. That's true. Story and song. <laughs> so from cave paintings to Zoom meetings in this current yeah. COVID world, you know, yeah. we we have nothing but stories to connect us with our past, our present, our future, and all the people around us. Exactly. And when we share that, we get to connect with others. And that seems to be the thing that makes our life worthwhile. Yes. It's to share yeah. our meaning with others. Sure. So, yeah. What a story, man. What a story. I know you, you told me that you have an ebook that you're, you're coming out with now, too. Yes. Yes. I, you know, as, as I started, once I wrote this book, I was still in Elvis mode thinking, look what I did, you know, because I went from a garage band with uh, my first guitar at 15 years old and, and made it to Vegas. I, I was inducted into the original Elvis impersonators hall of fame, uh, uh, you know, back, back in the eighties. Uh, and I thought, wow, you know, you know, and then Gordy said, your story needs to be heard. And I thought, okay, my story is about what I was able to accomplish in spite of it all. 
right? And so, but as I was writing the book, uh, I began to realize that there's lessons in here. There's these little life lessons, you know. Uh, if you can find a job, you can find two jobs. You know, if you can help a person, you can help a group of people. You know, all these little things that I've learned along the way, I put in this book as little life lessons. And then I tried to get out there and get some attention by telling people, look what I look what I've done. I went back to my old Elvis contacts, right? And then a couple of them, yeah, that's good. That's interesting. We didn't know that about you, blah, blah, blah. And then it just kind of like fell off the cliff. And I'm going, okay, I got the book. My my kids and my grandkids are going to know my story now. <laughs> so that came out of it. Uh, I got this this Lutheran boys group who who took sixty books, and they're that's going to help. If you help one person, you it's you you've done good, right? So how much is enough now, right? So I'm still thinking there's more to do, and all of a sudden I'm sitting at my kitchen table, and on the TV news comes this. This uh, Dr. John DeGarmo, which I guess you said has been on your broadcast uh, sometime during the past year. And by the way, congratulations on your one year anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and so Dr. John DeGarmo comes on and he's talking foster care. Me and my ears perk up. And he's on the news and he wants to help reform the system and help get some of the bugs out of it and make it better and fix some of the problems. And he said, Here's my website. Here's my cell phone. Call me if you want to help. And I'm thinking, aha, Dr. John, I wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he said, I've got a lot of info. He says, I, I'm, you know, of course, by this time, he's been doing this 10, 15 years, and I'm sure he's seen dozens and dozens. There are a lot of people like me out there who, you know, have, have struggled and they've written about it and they want to encourage people. And that's all good. We're all, we're all on the same team here trying to help each other, but he has a mentoring program. And, uh, he said, I will help you, uh, become a speaker, um, so that you can go out and, and put your message out there. And I'm thinking one of the things I learned in life, because we skipped over my corporate life, uh, cause not only did I entertain and go to Vegas, but I also, took a steady job, people, not just a dream job. I also got a job uh, at Ma Michigan Bell, AT&T, and I worked in corporate America for 35, 40 years um, and became a mid-level executive there. So they paid for my college and helped me do all this. But John DeGarmo comes along and he says, I'll help you get into the speaking circuit. And I'm thinking, one of the things I learned is if you want to be successful in anything, here's another life tip, folks. If you want to be successful in anything, go find somebody that's already successful doing that and try to learn from them. Find out what you can. Follow what they do. And it's easier to do now on the Internet than it was back when I was growing up, right? So as all part of that, John DeGarmo suggested that I create an ebook with some of my more focused tips and give it away free to, to anyone who wants to join my newsletter to get involved and maybe we can bring them along and help them to help others, right? 
So I wrote this ebook and I just finished it last week. And uh, it's up on my website, dannyvian.com, two ends in both names. And if you go there, you can sign up for my newsletter free, right? It's going to, right now, it's going to probably come out three, four times a year, nothing major. But you get this ebook, which I wrote, which focuses on foster care youth survivor basics. Man, if I would have known that at 17 years old, when I finally left my dad a note on the phone when he went camping that weekend, the note said, you've done enough. I'll take it from here. And I had some people who loved my singing, agreed to take me in. I packed everything I own in three grocery bags, and they drove me 100 miles away to Cadillac, Michigan. And I started my life as an emancipated minor. I didn't have this stuff. I didn't know other than these people are taking me in. Now I got somebody else taking care of me. But I did get a job. I went through co-op at school. I knew I wanted to be a singer. So I already had a career in mind. So I started thinking about what Dr. John said. And I said, you know, as I go out in Facebook and I'm, you know, I'm on Facebook and, and YouTube and uh, not so much LinkedIn. I do see some stuff on LinkedIn, but the Facebook groups of the foster kids, of, of, of the former foster kids and, and, and some of the foster parents that are struggling, most of the struggle that I'm hearing is, what do we do after they age out? What, what happens to them when they don't get adopted? You know, they don't have a pattern. They don't have a, the training. They don't have a career. So I put this ebook together of foster care survivor basics, uh, survive to strive. <laughs> and it has over three dozen links in there to all kinds of uh, services, um, housing, planning a career. I wrote an article, by the way, uh, on how to follow your passion into your career. Uh, there's government uh, uh, programs, there's grants, there's, there's even a suitcase uh, organization out there. Uh, uh, Rob Shear uh, uh, has a, a free suitcase for, for foster youth that are uh, coming out of the system. Don't send them out in another plastic bag. His, his organization gives them a free suitcase. I foster phone program. All this... Uh, American Bar Association has free foster legal services. And so I put all this together to help not only the, the youth, the kids, but also the foster parents who have a heart for the kids, but can't carry them into college years and beyond. And, you know, for whatever reason, they're not adopting them, you know. Uh, so that's the ebook. And it just came out. I just came out with it last week. And, uh, I hope it helps. <laughs> well, I don't hope. I know it will. I know it will. Well, I have a couple questions that, that I'd like yes. to ask. Um, just real quick questions, you know. If you had a magic wand that you could wave and fix one thing in foster care, what would you change? I I, I kind of touched on it a little bit earlier. I think the thing I would like to see changed is the the reunification requirements. I mean, it was great that dad got us back, but as I said, it, it was, it, it kind of backfired. 
because even though he got the house back and he got another woman to help take care of us, he didn't get any healing. He didn't, he didn't fix any of the problems that caused this whole thing in the first place, you know, and I'm not sure how to make all that happen, you know, going forward, but that's why it's a magic wand. Yeah. That's why the magic wand, but boy, if we could, and, and this is part of what some of the organizations that I'm hearing out there that are wanting to help repair that whole system. It's one of the things that I am hearing resonating out there is it isn't just about helping these kids or fixing these kids or, or, or coaching the kids or mentoring them or counseling them. You got to get back to the whole family. The whole family needs help. And some of them don't want it, obviously, you know, unfortunately, but we need to work on the whole problem, not just a piece of it. That makes sense. Makes sense. What do you wish people understood about your story that you think most of them don't? That's a tough one because my, my, the people that I'm trying to help are in on both sides of this story. I'm trying to help foster parents as much as foster kids. And I think that the biggest problem in all of this, even all the way back to my family, is dad was an agnostic. His dad was not God-fearing, okay? Uh, Grandma was. My mom, to some extent, was. I think the thing that I wish people knew about, about me is my resilience, my hanging in there, my positive attitude comes from my knowing at the very core of me that there is a God. And even though he, quote unquote, allows these things to happen, he's a very loving God, a very loving father, and he's doing a work in all of us. We're each at a different place and a different time. But one of the things that's way down at the beginning of all this, even all the way back to the Garden of Eden, is he gave mankind free will. It's our choice. Unfortunately, when we choose what, what the Bible calls evil or bad, because it's not God's way, if we don't choose love, if we don't choose to honor and obey our Creator, then there's consequences. And now all these thousands and thousands of years and generations and families that have come since then have just, you know, just imagine chaos on chaos and garbage on poison, on chemicals, on ugliness for all these years and generations. You got a mess. And that's why he's going to come back and restore things someday. But my resilience is because I know there's a God and I know that ultimately what he's putting me through and my family uh, is is for good. I, I Do I understand 100% of what that good is right at this moment in time? No, I have a better understanding now than I did when I went through it. But we can all look backwards and say, oh, well, I see why that happened to me because look what I learned. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
the last question I have here is, what does support look like for you? What does support mean? My support? Yeah, as you as you were supported going through your journey, either as a yeah. kid or on up till today, what's what's been the, some of the most valuable support you've received? Um, it's it's been those those unexpected smiles. Um, it's been a, a a a nun in an orphanage that's Irish that that hums Irish tunes under her breath as she's handling these monsters who are all acting out because they're angry and frustrated. It's been the the Knights of Columbus volunteers that show up with a a pickup truck full of ice cream in the middle of the summer. It's been the Protestant minister in Cadillac after I became an emancipated minor and got kicked out of the house I was in uh, because I wouldn't marry their daughter. <laughs> it's oh in the book. It's in the book. There's <laughs> these stories, man, I could go on. So I, I, daddy saw dollar signs when he heard me singing like Elvis. Anyway. When 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 I got kicked out of that house, I went and lived on my own because I had a job. I, I I carried my own weight. Carry your own weight. If you don't work, you don't eat. Okay, carry your own weight. So I did that. Uh, another reason why the dad kicked me out of house is I was bringing groceries home and he wasn't. He was disabled and he got angry because I was doing more for the family. But irregardless, it was the right thing to do. But. All of a sudden, I get called in the principal's office in high school, and he says, I'm sorry, you can't go to school here anymore. And I went, what? You don't live with that family anymore. You're 17. You can't go unless you live with a taxpaying guardian or adult. And this high school English teacher came forward. Her husband was a Protestant minister, and they agreed to take me in. Those moments were so awesome. God. God was there, I know, but these people had to say, yes, I'll do it. That whisper had to be answered and converted into action. All through my life, there have been these kinds of situations that have happened. People have told me, no, I've been discouraged. I've been angry because I wanted to do something and I wanted it now. And I learned five years later that had I gotten it, I would have destroyed whatever it was I would have gotten, right? Because I wasn't mature enough. I wasn't ready. And then when I finally got it, I looked back and I understood. Those moments, those smiles, those people, those foster parents, right? Those advocates that that say, you know what? I'll try it. Or I'll do it once. Or I'll drop something off. Just get involved. Do something. And then the kids that that came along in in the ones that, that locked arms and said, I'm not going to be defeated. I'm going to beat this. Those, those are those moments that encourage me and restore me and have helped me keep going. Wow. <laughs> That's a mouthful. That and and I'm sorry, but the story about not marrying the daughter, <laughs> that, that's worth a book in and of itself, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Well, oh man, <laughs> Danny, I want to appreciate you for coming on today and telling your story with so much vulnerability and and reaching out and trying to help others because it's the one thing that that everyone can do. It may be different for you than it is for me, but we all have a play a part to play in this game, and you're definitely playing your part, and we appreciate that. 
Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. All right, Foster Care Nation. I want to thank you for listening to Danny's story. I hope you have gained some knowledge and wisdom that you can bring into your life and your family. Be sure to come back next week. We put up news shows every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. You can connect with other like-minded people at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. Don't forget, we have a Patreon where you can support our mission at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. And as always... Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. You are so super awesome.